were produced here in South Africa, and nearly 200,000 of those were exported. Through the support of the DTI, Mercedes-Benz invested in its South African plant, creating over 900 direct and indirect jobs, which meant that someone could now afford a new home, a new car, and send their kids to school. With this achievement, it's easy to see how the DTI is igniting the industrialist in you. The DTI towards full-scale industrialization and inclusive growth. Some things come naturally to SAFM, SAFM. like being SA's news and information leader. leader. SAFM, 104 to 107. Top story this hour, a group of local NGOs have joined the global break-free campaign aimed to disrupt the fossil fuel industry by targeting the world's most dangerous and unnecessary fossil fuel projects. In South Africa, corruption is said to be aggravating the coal sector. Local communities are speaking out against the so-called dirty sector. Blocking the increased use of coal isn't just about safeguarding the environment and human health. It's also about putting an end to corruption, as our producers, Kravani Pillay and Ronald Perry, found out. You wouldn't eat coal as a meal, so why would you allow it to threaten your food security? That's the message from a worldwide campaign to encourage governments to break free from fossil fuels. Pharaoh Adam, the African Arab world leader for 350.org, says we don't need any more coal-fired power stations. If we look at the integrated resource plan, it was basically saying that we don't need more coal beyond Madubi and Kusile, which is being built as we speak. But what we find is there's a push to have more coal and to have more coal-fired power stations, and we're questioning why that is happening. One of the answers to the question posed by Adam is alleged corruption in the coal sector. Some of the mines are operating without water licenses, and no one is scrutinizing the mining operations. Adam elaborates on the ownership around some of the smaller mines. We are led to believe that there's something not right here. For example, Glencore had a deal to provide uh, ESCOM with coal uh, from the Optima mine. That mine was running at a loss. Then we find out that Glencoe had some visit from some officials in the government, and the next thing we know is the Guptas own that mine and now have that same deal with ESCOM, if not a better deal, because why would anyone want to take a deal if it's running at a loss? So we're questioning whether we asked ESCOM to say, we want to see the difference in the deals, because I know that Glencoe did speak to ESCOM to say the mine is not profitable, we need to change the deal, and ESCOM said no. So why then would someone else take it? So that leads us to believe that there's something else going on there. The sector receives a 100 billion rand government subsidy. The controversial Gupta family are becoming a force within the sector. Adam says the acquisition of Optimum Coal has raised questions about the type of deal government and ESCOM are doing with the Guptas. The Guptas have 80% share in Optima Mine, even though they claim to have resigned from positions, they're still 80% shareholder. And through Oak Bay, they own Cornfontaine Mine, Brackfontaine Colliery, and they have a stake in the Richards Bay Coal Terminal. They also have two or three new prospecting licenses as well. From a climate point of view, if we continue uh, um, increasing coal mines and coal-fired power stations, we're just not going to reach the kind of voluntary limits this country has set in terms of our greenhouse gas emissions. But I need to add that. It's not just about the coal. It's about the quality of the coal. So even the one mine, the Optimum Mine, was, you know, when, when Glencoe had the Optimum Mine, they were charged with, with selling 
yeah, inferior quality coal to ESCOM, and they were, they were fined for that. And that is the same coal that the Guptas are selling to ESCOM at probably, we don't know, we think, at a higher price. So something, you have to question, how is that happening? Organizations like 350.org want government to break free from new coal developments. Not only does coal mining use the much-needed resource of water, but the environmental impact is detrimental to the future generation. Now, with allegations of corruption in the industry, coal is becoming a dirty deal in more ways than one. For SAFM, I'm Ronald Peer in Johannesburg. Now, that is Ronald Perry with that report. Now, we are bound to speak uh, to um, uh, Professor Satka, Vishwa Satka, around this particular issue as climate change activists believe that the use of fossil fuels affects people, agriculture, and violates human rights. And as soon as we do get hold of him, uh, we'll put him on the line to uh, give us his take on the issue. The drought has disrupted food production, which has forced the increase in food prices. Now, when this happens, the poor are the first to suffer. And uh, Professor Vishwas Satkar, a member of the National Coordinating Committee uh, of South African Food Sovereignty Campaign, will be joining us as soon as we do get hold of him to uh, give us his uh, thoughts on the fossil fuels in South Africa and uh, and the coal mining as well as the coal-fired power stations that has been put up and uh, why would they, uh, the government t- take notice of this particular issue uh, after so much has been said about it. Would like to also get your thoughts, even you can raise your thoughts also on that issue. Uh, so let us know what's on your mind. We'll come back uh, as soon as we do get hold of uh, Professor Viswas Satkar. Meanwhile, one baby has died due to uh, Klebsiella at the Temba Hospital in Mpumalanga. The National Institute for Communicable Diseases is investigating cases of Klebsiella at the hospital. Five other babies have been found to have uh, contracted Klebsiella, a multidrug-resistant disease. Vusi Twala reports. The Mpumalanga province is the second after KwaZulu-Natal to discover the presence of Klebsiella in the country. Ten babies were infected in KwaZulu-Natal. One of them died. Klebsiella is a bacteria that is spread through contact and usually take advantage of a weak immune system. Mpumalanga's Department of Health says six babies were infected, one died and five have been treated. Department's head, Savera Mohangi, says the mother of the baby that died of Klebsiella allegedly refused for the baby to be treated. We have found that this, there were six babies in Temba Hospital that have been identified with Klebsiella. One has died. The one that was the source of the infection was basically a baby that has come, had come into the hospital, was very sick, but the mum had refused hospital treatment and took the baby back home. So when the baby returned, um, the child was at a very critical stage and unfortunately did not survive. Um, the other babies that we had Klebsiella pneumonia, we found that they did share the same warmer from the child that, that was infected, but subsequently they have been discharged and they have gone home. The Department of Health has also acknowledged the high mortality rate at the Petritif Hospital. It is alleged that three children died recently at the hospital due to negligence. Mohangi says they are moving towards the right direction to fight child mortality rate. In terms of child mortality, the norm is that we should be at less than 5%. So currently at the Petritif Hospital, we are at 7.3%. Like I mentioned, we are not where we want to be. We need to be at less than 5 but we started at 9.86 months ago, and we are slowly starting to decrease. So even at the, as a province, we have not reached the 5% target, but we have noticed that there's a gradual decrease over the years in terms of the child mortality. So we believe that our interventions, as we are strengthening them, will then allow us to achieve our target of 5%. Meanwhile, the department 
also announced that it has managed to reduce the over 700 backlog of patients in need of orthopedic surgeons. Deputy Director for Clinical Services in the department, Zipomutau, says the backlog now stands at just over 40. Currently, we have four orthopedic doctors that are permanently appointed, and we also have two sessional orthopedic specialists, which makes six. And additional to that, four orthopedic specialists came to the province deployed by the National Department from Cuba. They joined the department in April. So we have a total number of 10 orthopedic specialists. In terms of numbers, how we dealt with the backlog, we managed uh, to operate 747 inpatients that were on the waiting list. And currently, we only have a backlog of 42. The Mpumalanga Department of Health is now awaiting findings and recommendations from the National Institute for Communicable Disease, Amvusi Twala in Bombela. Now, climate change activists believe that the use of fossil fuels affect people, agriculture and violates human rights. The struggles against carbon emissions and coal mining are also impacting on food security. The drought has also disrupted food production, which has forced the increase uh, food prices. Now, when this happens, the poor are the first to suffer. On the line now is Professor Viswa Satkar, a member of the National Coordinating Committee, South African Food Sovereignty Campaign. Professor, very good afternoon to you and welcome. Good afternoon, Elvis, and thanks for having us. Now, Professor, there have been numerous calls for government to relook at its reliance on coal mining and coal fire power stations, but... It is, has, has not happened. We have seen, uh, we, we've seen a number of uh, coal-fired fired power stations, Madupi and Kusile, coming up. Why would the government take notice this time around, you think? Well, we do appreciate that the government is locked into what we call the minerals energy complex. And particularly the ANC understands the minerals energy complex as a source of wealth creation. Uh, we also believe that the government is not serious about its climate uh, transition commitments. Uh, I think it's very, very clear, both in our sort of peak plateau and decline scenarios, that the government's really working in the opposite direction. Um, So, yes, we have no illusions that the government is serious about addressing this issue, but we do believe that there's convergence of serious crisis factors today. Hmm. Uh, We've just crossed the threshold of one degree Celsius increase in planetary temperatures since pre-industrial revolution. Uh, we've experienced the hottest years on record, um, and at the same time, the COP negotiations... Uh, Professor, really can, not- you, can you just move around a little bit? It seems like the line is breaking there for us, and can you just repeat your last sentence? Uh, well, as I was saying, the, the COP21 negotiations around the climate issue has not produced a substantive agreement that really goes to the systemic part of the problem of the climate crisis. The current agreements that we have will take us into a three to four degree increase in planetary temperature. So we're already seeing that register in the kind of intensive, deep drought patterns uh, that Africa has been experiencing, at least over the past decade and a half. In 2009 and 2011, for example, there was a massive drought in East Africa. The current drought we're experiencing in South Africa is not a South Africa drought. It's Mm. a Southern Africa drought affecting probably about 49 million people 
according to UN Food Aid. It's affecting East Africa at the moment, uh, with Ethiopia completely having lost most of its, of its food production. Uh, it's a very, very serious situation. So that's an important factor. The other issue is how this kind of feeds into uh, food issues. Um, now, our globalized food systems are very, very vulnerable. We've seen a massive shock between 2006 and 2008, another shock in 2010, 2011, and multiple factors feed into this, from biofuels to oil prices to climate issues. But we are seeing another shock now. And that's got to do with the El Nino effect. Mm-hmm. And, and I think as that bites people, there's an opportunity here to connect up the dots. And today was very historic because most organizations that normally work in the environmental space beaver away in their little corners. And today we really kind of broke the, the silos and declared that we'll be working uh, on a common platform in which we are calling for break freeing from coal, which means that we've got to intensify our efforts towards renewable energy and a just transition. We've also uh, committed to protest intensively against coal mining in South Africa and make this a very visible issue, uh, including the violence that goes with this kind of mining against communities. We've also agreed to take up uh, the whole question of the food link. And I think that's very, very important. There's the makings, we believe, out of today's modest efforts and the rolling program of action we've announced, mm-hmm. which, starts in, which starts in Vitbank, which is the most polluted town in the world, actually, uh, on Thursday, where we'll have a community speak out on the pollution and the devastation that has come with coal mining. We will then roll that speak out to Constitutional Hill on Friday morning from 9 to 1 o'clock, where we will increasingly make the connections between uh, coal and, of course, the drought and, and of course, food prices. Mm-hmm. This will then roll on into a national bread march that will leave Constitutional Hill at 1 o'clock. It will make its way down to Carter Street, uh, up to and, and into Jorison Street. We will give a memorandum to Wits University to end hunger, as well as reduce its greenhouse gas emissions, and then end at a supermarket, pick and pay at the corner of Jorison and Jan Smart, mm-hmm. where we'll be handing over memorandums to ministers we've invited, agriculture, environment and water, and CEOs, food mm-hmm. CEOs. Now, we've also invited the Human Rights Commission to come up yes. as well. Now, Professor, you are advocating for a Food Sovereignty Act. Now, why should South Africans then heed this call for a, a climate justice mo- movement? The point I'm trying to get at is that, yes, they won't, the, the government won't listen to us, but I think there's a regroupment going on around the urgency. Uh, there's a people's movement in the making, and that's very, very important. But it's also a people's movement that's willing to talk in a hard-headed way about realistic, systemic solutions. It's in that context, for example, we need to entertain ideas like climate jobs. We need to entertain ideas like socially owned renewables, including a renewable energy parastatal in this country, where we need to entertain the idea of food sovereignty. Now, food sovereignty, very simply, is about giving greater control to producers and consumers of the food system. And if you look at the current food system in South Africa, it has many, many pathologies. I mean, it doesn't feed 14 million people. This was just before the drought. 46% of our population, food insecure. So it's failed at that very basic level. One in five children are malnourished in this country. The same food system is extremely toxic in terms of obesity issues and so on. It uses up most of our water resources in South Africa, almost 63%. Um, It's also very, very polluting in terms of carbon emissions, etc. It wastes almost 50%, according to one estimate, of fresh fruit and vegetable annually. So it's a food system that really is driven by the imperative of profit over life. 
And so in that context, an alternative like food sovereignty, when you break it down, is really about saying small-scale farmers are important in the food system. They can use a different science of agroecology to produce in a way that's in harmony with nature, that will produce food that is nutritious and in keeping with sustainable diets. Uh, they will manage our genetic material, like our seeds, in a way that ensures we control it and not the corporation. Yes. Uh, it will ensure we also manage water resources in a much more sustainable way. Professor, that's where the we've got to leave it, unfortunately. Thank you so much for your time. That was Professor Vishwa Satkar, a member of the National Coordinating Committee of South African Food Sovereignty Campaign. That's where we've got to leave it. It's time for your traffic with Rob Byrne. Traffic on SAFM. Thank you so much for that update. That was FNB Securities' Nicole Wood on the line giving you the latest. 105.1. The home of SAFM in Johannesburg. Johannesburg. SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. Now this week, people from mining affected areas and civil society want government to break free from a corrupt mining sector. Now, Witbank, Emelashleni, is home to the country's largest coal fields and no fewer than 11 coal-fired power stations. It is also home to the coal-fired power station Kusile, which will become one of the biggest coal-fired power stations in the world. Almost four hours north of Femalashleni is Waterberg. Now, it's considered the country's second coal basin and an extremely water-stressed area. Coal expansion in both areas threatens the access to clean drinking water, which is under threat. Kravani Pillay and Ronald Peary look at the impact of coal mining on, in these two areas. About 130 kilometers northeast of Johannesburg lies Emalakleni, also known as Whitbank. It holds the title of the most polluted city in the world. Emalakleni has been described as an environmental crime scene with high levels of air pollution which pose a health risk for its residents. Matthews Klabane Mpumalanga Provincial Coordinator for Mining Affected Communities says the area could soon become inhabitable. Emalatlin is hell on earth because um, you've got areas that have been mined out and have got very deep sinkholes that are dangerous to community members. And you've got areas um, of such that are burning from underground. They've been burning since the 1930s until today. The water in Emalatlini has turned to be very acidic, sometimes with a pH of about 2. That is equivalent to battery acid. But the worst part of it is that we've got such water located in evaporation ponds in and around Emalatlini. So the young ones, because the township don't have recreational facilities, will jump into the water when it is hot and swim not knowing that this is, has got a serious health impact on them in the long run. The worst part, it becomes their parents who have to spend, especially the mothers, spend long hours in clinics and hospitals queuing for their kids to receive medical attention, hours that are not being paid for. But you also have another situation that about 86% of the people around Emalatlini have got sinuses, you know, as a result, it is known, if you leave Emalatlin without sinuses, you are probably not around. Uh, most of the time, you are not from Emalatlin. But um, over and above that, people are asthmatic, people have got kidney problems because they drink the water that is contaminated with heavy metals. And most of those are poor people who tend to be victims because they cannot buy bottled water or purified water. You've got situations where people are suffering from headaches, 
um, to an extent of even dying. Um, without anyone taking responsibility for that, you know, it's accused on their health, it's accused on um, their failure to look after themselves. People have got uh, serious lung symptoms with no money because majority are unemployed at the moment and unemployed and disparate. In the morning, you'll find people walking up and down in search of employment, carrying, you know, CVs with the hope that they will be employed. And as a result, the mining companies have proved that they cannot absorb, you know, everyone. So there's that element of disparation. And as a result, um, in particular, the youth get, you know, involved in drugs and substance abuse. Sabane believes the one way of turning the situation around would be to create one million climate jobs. Instead of perpetuating more mining activities, more coal mining activities, let's go for renewables. But over and above that, it says that because we've got these abandoned mines all over that have not been rehabilitated, because we've got the environment or the ecosystem destroyed, the rivers contaminated, it's about time that we actually use that to actually create opportunities for our people. We equip them with the technical know-how to deal with you know, acid mine drainage. We equip them with the skills to restore the river systems and the ecosystem. And also skills to do some soil restoration because the soil is also affected. So that at the end of the day, we will have more people participating and trained in dealing with uh, you know, such uh, technical issues. But at the end of the day, our people will be able to use the rivers for recreational purposes and for you know, life purposes. And um, the ecosystem will bring back uh, probably elements of life that we lost long ago. With the soil, we can be able to produce food through some agroecological uh, programs, but that can only come about if there has been a restoration you know, of the soil, and that will take years to can be achieved. That's why we say it can create jobs for a very long time, which can actually be sustainable. Another area affected by coal mining is the Waterberg. It's a stressed area with low rainfall. The arid region has a high rate of evaporation. Mako Malikalakala, Senior Programs Officer at EarthLife Africa in Johannesburg, says the coal-fired projects in Waterberg will have an adverse effect on the people and biodiversity in the area. Currently, there's about five IPPs, coal-based independent power producers, being proposed in that area. There's about four mines proposed in that area. Already there was Xaro, there was um, Matimba coal-fired power station, Midupi is under construction. And what that means, that means that um, the land is going to be taken away, so um, ecological tourism is no longer going to take place in the area. People are being resettled from farms to go into the township or to go into the villages. So the livelihood of people is compromised. But more concerning is that the area has been declared a projected hotspot on air quality. That means there's a need for greater management for air quality. But however, what is very disturbing is that um, with the projects that are being proposed in the area is that um, some of them are being given a go-ahead and that has got a greater impact in particular because of the air quality in the area, um, cumulative impacts, uh, water scarcity, and um, the compromising the health of the people and the environment at large. The NGO who wants us to break free from coal mining 
also want to highlight how the sector is depleting our already constrained water supply. They believe government should stop all future coal projects and focus on the renewable energy sector. In doing so, this may also safeguard food production. For SAFM, I'm Ronald Peary in Johannesburg. That was Cravani Pillay and Ronald Peary putting that package together, a lovely package there. Now, for more on the story, we'll join a little bit late in the program at 17.50 by David von Veik. He's a lead researcher at the Benchmark, Benchmark Foundation to give us his take on the story. So stay tuned. It is now 17.52. This week, people from mining-affected areas and civil society called on government to break free from a corrupt mining sector. Now, Witbank, or Malasleni, is home to coal-fired power stations, Kusile, which will become one of the biggest coal-fired power stations in the world. And uh, just north from Malasleni in Waterberg, it's considered the country's second coal basin and extremely water-stressed area. Let's now uh, talk to David von uh, Veik. He is a lead researcher at the Benchmark Foundation about this. A very good afternoon to you, David, and welcome. Good afternoon, Elvis, and thank you for having me. Well, the obvious question is, is coal a stable source of energy? Well, I don't think that coal is a sustainable source of energy. I think that, um, you know, like any other uh, mineral, it's not renewable. And so at some point, we're going to run out of coal globally. Um, Apart from that, coal is very dirty, you know, in terms of air quality and water pollution and so on. Uh, Coal has a massive impact. And in the Mpumalanga area, which is the breadbasket of South Africa, massive amounts of swill has been lost to the coal mining uh, industry, you know, and that is where our food security is threatened, you know, both in terms of irrigation with regard to the pollution of rivers and the loss of soil to coal mining, um, you know, and then, of course, the issue of air quality and global warming and so on. Now, the proponents of coal claim that coal has benefits for overall economic development. So what do you say then to the argument that South Africa has an abundance of dirty coal and should be used to bolster economic growth? Well, I think that South Africa has an abundance of coal, but a serious lack of water. We are one of the most water-scarce countries in the world. We get 50% less average rainfall than the global average. So, um, you know, uh, we really have a problem with water, and we are really polluting the rivers and so on that we are having. You know, that there's a government directive that people cannot use the water from the Wollipons River, or, or for that matter, eat any fish and so on that they fish from that river. Now, that's a very sorry state for a major river in South Africa to be in. You know, so we are to choose between uh, air security, you know, oxygen security, water security, food security, and coal. And when we have an abundance of sunshine, you know, uh, Germany, for example, produces more solar energy than we do, and they, uh, they only have a fraction of the sunshine that we have uh, in South Africa. You know, South Africa should uh, use its natural resources wiser and, and in a more sustainable manner than what it is doing at the moment. Has South Africa made any significant strides in environmental responsibility with mining coal and and burning that coal? And and what are the potential impacts of coal on human health and aquatic life? Well, I think that the um, South Africa has not been very responsible as far as coal mining is concerned because if I look look at the uh, levels of emissions uh, and, uh, for example, dust uh, distribution and so on, particular matter distribution in the Vitbank area, we do not come near to meeting the requirements of the World Health Organization uh, guidelines, for example. And that is also with regards to sulfur dioxide um, emissions. You know, uh, we, we, we do not even approach the World Health Organization 
organization guidelines as far as that is concerned. And, you know, a, a year ago, uh, it was found that the air quality in the Witbank Imralacheni area is actually uh, at times worse than it is uh, in China, you know, the air quality in China. You know, and, and, and we are a very small country with regard to our population and our size, and we are polluting far above, uh, you know, far above uh, uh, the size of, of our economy and also of our country. We're responsible for 98% of Africa's air pollution and 80, 86% of um, Africa's waste production. You know, so these are the kinds of statistics that, aren't, that, that are not very pleasing as far as the environment and the future of this country is concerned. Now, how likely is it that government will add even more car- coal-fired power stations knowing that uh, two is coming currently? Well, I think that the Madupi and, 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 and Kusile are both over budget, massively over budget, and both are way behind schedule, you know, which, which is just an indication of how these kinds of projects go. And, of course, South Africa now wants to go the nuclear way as well, talking about some nine, nine or so nuclear stations that they, want to, that they want to construct, which is also hugely problematic. You know, when, when we have all this natural um, um, resources as far as, as energy is concerned, you know, we've got wind, we've got uh, a very wide coast in terms of wave energy, and also we've got uh, the sun, you know, the, 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 the use of the sun. And we... We really need to move away from this dependence on on dirty energy, even though uh, dirty energy is a quick way of creating uh, a black middle class, which I think is the objective of the government with mining. What alternatives do we have uh, in terms of environmentally safe energies that government should invest in? Well, I think sunshine is, 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 is the biggest one. You know, in many European countries now, um, for example, in France, every new building that goes up must have solar, uh, solar panels on its roof. You know, it's a, re- it's a regulatory requirement. You know, that's the kind of thing that we should be having. In Germany, uh, you can rent out your roof to energy companies, and they come and put up the solar panels so that you can feed into the national grid from your solar panels. And these are all countries that have long winters and, and many cloudy days and so on. And they are able to harvest. Denmark now exports clean energy. You know, it exports um, clean energy because it, 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 it no longer is dependent on mineral-based and, 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 and on coal and oil-based energy. David from Vega, thank you so much for your time. That Thank was, you so much, Sean. That was David from Vaker, lead researcher at the Benchmark Foundation, giving us his thoughts on dirty power, they call it. Right now, let's take a quick look at you.